0: Alright, well let's finish up Job's response to Eliphaz, and then we'll take some questions on Job to this point, and then the John series that we just finished in worship. We're talking about Job, his lament in chapter 3, the pouring out of his heart, and then finally his friends begin to speak, Eliphaz goes first, and you think this is it, this is the moment of godly and wise counsel, this is the moment of comfort. And instead, you get Eliphaz's speech, which involves two compliments, 47 insults, and a bunch of irrelevant theological truths that are applied incorrectly to what's happening. And we said that in Job's response, as as you look at it on the whole, what you really notice is that he's not responding to Eliphaz at all. He's pretty much ignoring what Eliphaz said. And he's responding to God in grief about his circumstances and now the compounding of his circumstances with these friends. And so his life, chapter 7, is miserable. It's it's uh, it's short and uh, futile, has no purpose. And then we talked about how he concludes with an ironic take of what's contained in Psalm 8, the idea that. God is so great, and yet he is mindful of each of his creatures. And Job uses this language of, yeah, look what happened when God was mindful of me. And he told Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Job's problem in his response that we identified is that he's thinking small. He thinks about the Leviathan. He thinks about the monsters. He thinks about the irrelevance of his life in context of these other things, but he never thinks that there might be something more at stake than just his life or his happiness or his sense of purpose. We know the answer because we got the first two chapters of the book. We sat in on the heavenly council. We heard the debate or dialogue between God and Satan, and we know what's happening and in some sense why it's happening. But that is a very unusual position to be in when it comes to human suffering. Normally, we have no clue why human suffering is happening, why these things are happening, especially to God's people, to good, faithful people like Job. And that's the point. That's the point of Job being written this way, is that we know the thing he doesn't know. So that our, our temptation is to stand on the sidelines and say, no, Job, you can't think that way. And yet the moment we put ourselves in Job's place, hopefully it's clear to us just how similarly we would think, just how realistic this struggle and the things that he says are. But I quoted Derek Thomas last week that the the, the reason for this that Job can't see is not just a specific reason he can't see. It's a category. It's a level that he's not thinking about. It is so big because it's the glory of God himself. It's God's honor. Satan challenged God's ordering of things, and Satan has to be put down. And the way that God is going to prove to the universe that Satan is wrong is by persevering Job in faith. And Job has a very significant role to play, a very important role to play. And he is utterly clueless that that's what God is doing. And so the negative of Job's speech in terms of, oh, I wish you weren't thinking that way, is that he's thinking too small. A lot of times when people look at Job's response, what they think are the negatives of his speeches are first anger that the anger is a problem, and second, that he sins along the way, that he makes sinful accusations against God. But we talked last week about how this particular speech especially, there are no accusations against God. There are frustrations with his circumstances and his surroundings. The stuff that Job says about God is true. He's not happy about it. He's not happy about the result of that in his own life. But that's different than sinning against God or accusing God's uh, justice. Job just wants his life to be over. But even there, he's not willing to take his own life. He tells God, Won't you please do this? Since my life is in your hands, won't you please put an end to this misery? So the question should be asked Did Job sin in this speech? And we have to go looking for, all right, well, what are the reasons we would say that? Why would we even suggest that Job may have sinned here? And and honestly, I think it comes down to, he's angry. People look at this level of anger and say, it must be sinful. These are very angry questions. They, They carry with them the weight that everyone and everything is against him. But just for a moment, Is he wrong? (laughs) Everyone and everything is against him. God allowed and uh, gave Satan license for that to be so. What's that they say about uh, conspiracy theorists? Just because you think everyone's out to get you doesn't mean you're wrong, right? Like you can be right. (laughs) And Job's analysis, as massive as it is, is correct. Um, He's mad about the discontinuity between what the world should be and what it is. And that's especially true given Eliphaz's view of the world, where Eliphaz comes up and says, no, good people get good things and sinners get corrected and you should be thankful for correction. And Job knows that there is no level of sin in his life that warrants this level of correction, comparatively or objectively. And so he, he he's Mad that what is doesn't match what ought to be. And we talked about how that is the same observation that Solomon has in Ecclesiastes. I look around the world and I observe that what is is not what ought to be. And Job will come out of that exact same analysis with a very different conclusion than Solomon did. So, uh, is anger sinful? No. Anger, just objectively, anger is not sinful. Derek Thomas says anger is a necessary valve for releasing tension. But, and this is the important caveat, anger is difficult to control. There's non-sinful anger. And there's sinful anger. We have to accept those as objective categories. And sinning in our anger is sin. It's a problem. The anger is not the problem. The sin is the problem. But Dr. Thomas points out, there's an additional consideration there that you've got to keep in mind, which is that anger is very, very difficult to control. And so what can start out as non-sinful anger it is very difficult to keep it there you are playing with fire even when there is non-sinful anger in your life because of how hard it is to keep it from snowballing into sin Uh, nobody may have these anyway. because if we go to proverbs 14 and proverbs 25 I forgot to redistribute these. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. You can't you can't run into anger. You can't run into anger. You have to, if if you're going to have anger and not be sinful, it has to be a very thoughtful, careful, deliberative move into anger. Now, no show of hands, no, but what percentage of the anger in your life do you enter into thoughtfully, carefully, and deliberately? I have a pretty low percentage on that scale. Most of the anger in my life, I run headlong into, uncarefully, uncritically, and it becomes sinful anger, no matter what the cause was. Many times my anger's the, the cause of my anger doesn't justify anger at all. So just by default, my anger sinful because I have no right to be angry about the thing. But even when I have a right to be angry at the thing, and I just go running into it, I find myself stumbling into gossip, into pride, into malice, into envy, into things that are objectively and always simple. And that's what happens when we when we are not careful in our approach to anger. Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Self-control is what keeps everything in its place. Self-control keeps anger on the non-sinful side of the ledger. And the moment that we lose or lack self-control, things get out of place. Our city has no walls. Uh, That anger would well up in us is not itself a sin. Injustice deserves anger. Many types of sin and wickedness and evil. Anger is an appropriate response to sin and injustice and evil. But when we feel the anger well up in us, we can either just let it go. Just, hey, let's see where this takes us. In which case we're the city without no walls and we're going to run headlong into sin. Or we reflect on the Lord's question from the book of Jonah. Do you do well to be so angry? Is this anger good? And we think, okay, is this anger good? Well, I mean, this plant is the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my life. And you took it from me and I've loved it for eight minutes now. And yeah, yeah, I do good to be so angry. That was Jonah's analysis, right? And when you have to say that out loud, at the very least, you're, you're pulling a Luther. You're going to sin boldly, right? You're not going to allow yourself to uncritically examine your anger and just feel self-righteous regardless of what the facts are. When you ask the question, why am I so angry? And should I be so angry? Is it right that I'm so angry? You may keep on keeping on in your anger. But you are either going to have righteous anger, which is pleasing to the Lord, or you're going to be honest with yourself. "Ah, I'm being a selfish jerk. Makes me mad. (laughs) And that's better. Self-aware sin is better than sin that we pretend isn't there. Uh, Much easier to confess and repent of the second because we see it for what it is. So Job's anger is justified. Job feels the loss of his Dignity, not dignity like in a pride sense, I'm not getting what I deserve, but in a human dignity sense, what creature made in the image of God, what faithful follower of God just deserves, I'm going to put that in quotes, deserves to be on a pile of smoldering trash, scraping wounds off of his arms. If, if people are going to get in any sense, uh, reap what they sow, this is not Job reaping what he sows. This is Job reaping what a really, really wicked person sowed. And Job is not that. And so that loss of dignity, that that disconnect between what ought to be and what is in a sin-filled and cursed world, those are a reasonable cause for anger. Uh, and add on top of that, his closest friends have effectively abandoned him in a time of need. Not physically abandoned him. That might have been better. Instead, they showed up. They said nothing for seven days. And then when one of them speaks, he says, yeah, your kids are dead. That's your fault. Yikes. Maybe stay home next time. Maybe maybe send a card. But don't come and comfort if that's what you have to offer. So if you look at, uh, who's got Job open? 721... Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth, you will seek me, but I shall not be. All right, Job is saying to God, Why do you do all this? You know, one day you're going to look for me and you won't find me. You hear what Job's saying? You'll be sorry when I'm gone, God. And it's supposed to make us chuckle in sympathy, it's childlike hurt. Children say things like that. As we grow up and mature, we've learned not to say that out loud because people laugh at us, but we feel it all the time. You'll be sorry when I'm gone. You'll wish you hadn't treated me this way. And that's what Job is saying to God, that God will miss Job. He'll miss Job's fellowship and faithfulness and worship and devotion. He'll miss Job when he's gone. Now, that's childlike and it's silly on one level. But for that to be the case, Job believes that's true. And for Job to believe that's true, what else must he believe? He has to believe that God is a personal and loving God who personally loves Job. We're we're in a bad place right now, God but i remember your faithfulness before i know who you are i know that you are love and when you get back to that you'll be sorry you'll be sorry that i'm not here it's really really good what's in the core of job's faith and yet look at what comes out of his mouth not sin i don't think so i i Just don't agree that there's sin on Job's part in these chapters. But what comes out of his heart is disappointment, sadness, sorrow, lament, brokenness. Can you understand that? I mean, can't can't you understand knowing what he knows, which is very little about this situation? This is what comes out of his mouth. It's how he feels. It's not a rejection of what he believes, but that's actually what's wrong with him, is that it's inconsistent with what he believes, or at least he thinks it is. What I see and experience is inconsistent with what I know to be true. And that is a very tough place to be intellectually, emotionally. Derek Thomas said, the hardest lesson to learn is that God alone can determine what is best for us. Only he sees the beginning from the end. He is the only one who knows what it is going to take to conform each one of his children to the image of his son, and he will spare nothing in accomplishing that goal. Back to the main point of this book, God's glory is first. Look at the Look at the moment where you say, God, I would have done that differently. God, I would have not allowed this to happen. We all have those moments. And you look at that moment and ask the question, why would I have done it differently? And the answer will never be because God would be more glorified my way. The other things can be valid. There wouldn't be so much hurt. There would It would have been easier. It would have been more comfortable. There would have been less sorrow among really good people. All of those things can be true. But what will never be truthfully at the top of your list is God would have been more glorified my way than his way. Because God's chief end is strangely similar to the chief end of man, which is to glorify God And enjoy him forever. And that's God's purpose too. Is to glorify himself. And delight within the perfect love of the Trinity. And his own perfection. And so for God to do this. uh, For him to be glorified. In the world that he made. The way that happens. I won't say most isn't precisely right. But. I don't want to go down that trail for a minute. The way that happens most is by making sinful human rebels against his throne. Not only friends rather than enemies, but making them Christ-like, conforming them to the image of his son. We could look at a family of children and uh one of them is particularly rebellious. And you think, man, if those parents could transform that kid, they can do anything. So now God looks across all of the sons and daughters that he made, all of the people who've ever lived, and he doesn't choose out the highest success likelihood candidates. He chooses rebels against his throne. He chooses those of us who in our hearts hate God and want to be our own gods and it is as though he says to Satan I'm going to show you my power and my glory by making them wholeheartedly devoted to me and like Christ conform to the image of my perfect son and the heavenly court sitting around Satan and the demons would go yeah yeah, right you're going to make these people like Christ and God says, watch me. And that's what he does. And you can, in that context, you can see, well, that would be really glorifying of God. <laughs> that's a, a pretty stunningly glorifying thing to do. So God puts his glory first. And the difficulty for us, and it is magnified in Job, we cannot possibly know what it takes to achieve those ends you can be as smart as the smartest people in the world, most uh, biblically minded people in the world, you can be one of the most sanctified people in the world and you are not capable of knowing what needs to take place in this world to make God's children like Christ. And you see all these things happen and you're you can say 100% certainty that made the people involved, or people who observed, more like Christ. How? Don't know. Out of my pay grade, beyond my understanding. But absolutely true, and I never would have picked it. Which means that if I ran the world, they would never be like Christ. If I ran the world, no one would ever experience what it actually takes to be conformed to the image of Christ. Because I wouldn't do many of these things that God chooses to do. And so we'd never get there. We would not work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We would retreat into idolatry and selfishness. That knowledge, and this is why Job is so valuable, because we see that point made clearly in these first seven chapters. And we also see that Job, who doesn't know what we know, has to live this physically, emotionally, and theologically horrific experience. And the knowledge of what it produces, Christ likeness, cannot short circuit the emotional response to having to live this out. It's the answer to the question that gives us hope. It's the reason why we don't just curse God and die. But when we're trying to comfort people or when we're experiencing our own pain, this knowledge cannot short-circuit the pain. You can't just jump over the painful parts because you know that ultimately this is making you and others more like Christ. And that is a really valuable lesson from Job. This is utterly true. And if you try to use that knowledge to short-circuit, The experience of living in a fallen and broken world, you just make people mad. (laughs) You make them mad. Or like Solomon, you drive yourself nuts. You just go nuts. You can't make any sense of it.